For those of you remaining in the room, if you have your Bibles, please open to the book of Acts chapter 14. We're going to read two different sections from Acts chapter 14. The first one will begin in verse 1. Here a few pages, still getting there. Acts chapter 14, verse 1, receive the word of God. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. And there was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the gospel. And we'll continue on in verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you bow with me forward of prayer? Lord, we come before you thankful for your word for the truth contained therein, for the gift that we have of meeting you there, that you reveal yourself to us in Scripture. Lord, I ask that you would uh, be present with us in the space and time that we, we would empty ourselves so that we could be filled by you, and we pray, God, that you would do that through the power and the witness of your word. Lord, open our eyes that we would see, our ears that we would hear. Open our minds that we come to know and understand your word, our hearts, we would feel its power. Then I ask that you would open our hands, that in response we would offer grace to the world, the grace we have in your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. This is uh, Paul's first missionary journey, what we find ourselves in in Acts chapter 14, Paul's first missionary journey. So I want to orient us to where we are in this this uh, missionary work, uh, where we are uh, as, as Paul is traveling, because geographically it, it's interesting to know uh, what, what the, where the cities are, what the proximity looks like. So we have a map we're going to walk through, and, and I want you to begin by seeing that, that Paul's journey begins in Antioch. 
uh, not Pisidian Antioch, Antioch. And, and this is the community in which uh, believers in Jesus were first called Christians. So if anybody ever says, hey, well, where did the name Christian come from? Antioch. The church in Antioch is where we were first called Christians. And that community of faith experienced just a powerful movement of the Spirit, multiplication of the disciples. And in response, uh, the Spirit then raised up a witness and called Paul and Barnabas to be set apart and leave their community of faith and to go and be on mission. And he also, uh, the Spirit also called John Mark to, to go with them. Isn't that interesting that, that, that they're, uh, they're, they're thriving, God is moving, and even in that midst, God raises up leaders and sends them out. It's a beautiful witness. And so what does Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark do? Well, they, they go to the coastline, they set sail for Cyprus, and while they're in Cyprus, they minister and witness to the gospel, they teach in the synagogues, and uh, significantly, they, uh, they witness to a man named Sergius Paulus, who is the proconsul of Cyprus. So the Roman leader of that entire island uh, is Sergius Paulus, uh, who is from Pisidian Antioch. And there's a whole nother sermon there that's really beautiful about how God orchestrated uh, that opportunity to witness. And so from Cyprus, after converting Sergius Paulus, they go uh, to the coast, which is now in Turkey, and they land in Perga. Now, Perga is uh, also in some versions called Antalya. And one of the beautiful things about that city is it's a powerfully influential community. It's a port city with rich heritage and influence all around the region. But Paul and Barnabas don't stop there. They go straight from Cyprus, land in Perga, and they go all the way to Pisidian Antioch. I think largely because of the relationship they had with Sergius Paulus, the proconsul in Cyprus, who then prepared the way for them to be received in Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. So we find ourselves uh, in Acts 14, just after Paul and Barnabas minister in Antioch, and they arrive in Iconium. And then after Iconium, they go to Lystra. They have a brief ministry in a city called Derby, which isn't on this map, but is just to the east of Lystra, very closely connected. And then that is the conclusion of the missionary journey as they work their way back through. So that's all we need from the map, but it, it, it orients us to where we are. This is towards the tail end of Paul's first missionary journey, and we're in Lyconium. Uh, Iconium. And in Iconium, the very first thing that Paul and Barnabas do when they enter into the city is they go to the Jewish synagogue. It, it, it even says, as, they, uh, as was usual, the scripture says, they go to the synagogue. So this is the, 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 the natural course of action. Enter into the community, go to the synagogue, and they proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. They do so boldly, they do so powerfully, so powerfully that there are Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, that both come to believe in Jesus through their witness at the very beginning of their ministry in the synagogue. But something else happens there. Uh, while they testify to Jesus in the synagogue, and many believe, there are others who don't believe. Specifically, there are some Jewish leaders who don't believe in Iconium, 
And it says that they then uh, went and convinced other Greeks, meaning those that weren't already convinced of Jesus, there are other Greeks, and it says that they poisoned their minds against the good news of Jesus. So now you have, in the city of Iconium, you have two divided groups. Uh, you have the, groups of, the group of Jews and Greeks that have responded to the good news of Jesus, that have desired to follow Jesus and are listening to the teaching of Paul and Barnabas. And you also have this group of Jews who have poisoned the minds of other Gentiles and they are working at an adversarial relationship to the gospel of Jesus. Now, at this point, you have a divided community. You have those that are actively working against you. It would seem natural to either retreat or to at least tone it down a little bit, right? Like, like instead of going to the Jewish synagogue and teaching publicly and entering into these debates, maybe just kind of draw it back in, enter into some more quiet relationships. Maybe we don't have to be in the middle of the scene, in the middle of town when we begin testifying. That's not what Paul and Barnabas do. Uh, I love, remember, I, many of you know, I love the small words of Scripture that connect things together because it helps us to understand how it's interwoven. In verse 3 of chapter 14, it says, so, so, in response to divided community with poisoned minds, so, Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there because everybody loves division, right? Like, like find the most divisive, poisonous setting that you could possibly be in and decide, yeah, stay a little longer. Let's drag that one out as much as we can. That's not, that's not what seems natural, but it is what Paul and Barnabas do. It says, so Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there. And then it, it also says this, speaking boldly for the Lord. They didn't shy away. They didn't tone it down. They didn't separate their ministry from the public ministry. They stayed fully engaged in the challenging situation, and they presented the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, what happens? In this divided community, those Jews and Greeks that were against Paul and Barnabas and against the gospel of Jesus Christ, it says that they now are plotting against Paul and Barnabas so that they, uh, they could mistreat them, verse 5 says, and stone them. Do you know what stoning is? I mean, it, it's basically the community all gets a rock and everybody gets to bash you with it. It's designed to kill you. Now, I have some sixth graders in the room that are just starting confirmation. They're looking at their parents saying, why am I not with Miss Patricia in Cub Kids? And uh, Peyton, you're welcome. Good job. Enjoy. Uh, Peyton's our, our, our student ministries director. So that's the threat upon Paul and Barnabas's life. So what do you do? You got a divided community, poison minds working against you. They want to stone you. What do you do? Run away. Whoever said that, you get two thumbs up. Good job. All right. You, that seems reasonable. Run away. It's time to leave. Exit stage right or left. I don't care whichever's closest. Well, 
That's exactly what Paul and Barnabas do. In verse 6, it says they find, find out about the plan and they fled. They, they, they ran away to other cities nearby. And that's how we have Paul move and Barnabas move from Iconium to Lystra. So now let's see what happens in Lystra. So they get into the city of Lystra, and, and while they're uh, probably, it seems, on the way to the synagogue, because that was their usual thing to do, we already learned, uh, on their way there, they see a man who is lame, a man who cannot walk and uh, would have been well known in the community, and yet this man who could not walk believed that he could be healed. It doesn't say that he had faith in Jesus, but it does say that he had faith. He had faith that his current circumstance didn't have to have the final say. And Paul saw this in him. And as he saw this man's faith, he turned to him and said, get up and walk. Paul, this isn't Jesus. This isn't Peter uh, standing next to Jesus. This is Paul in the power of the Spirit, tells this man, get up and walk. And you know what the man does? It says he jumps up. He doesn't just like crick his back like I do getting out of bed in the morning, stretch a little bit. He jumps up. He literally leaps as he is enabled uh, and as his body has been healed. So what does the community do that witnesses this healing? This man who was lame who now can, can, can leap. Well, you would think maybe they want to hear how this happened, but they don't want to hear how this happened. They rush to judgment, and here is their judgment. The people of Lystra believe that Paul and Barnabas are gods. They believe that Paul is Hermes and that Barnabas is Zeus, and they believe that they need to worship Paul and Barnabas as Zeus and Hermes. And uh, there's even a temple to Zeus outside of the city. And the temple master of the temple of Zeus brings different items to sacrifice, to honor Barnabas uh, and Paul and, and to acknowledge that they are gods because they had the power to heal. And so in response to this, this, this movement in the community, Paul and Barnabas run out before the people who are trying to honor them. And it says they tear their clothes. And I believe that this has two different symbolic uh, movements associated with it. The first is to literally show them we're flesh and blood. Look, I, I, I am human just as you are. And they testify to that with their words. But renting clothes, tearing clothes is also a symbolic uh, image of mourning. So they're coming out and they're ripping their clothes as a sign of mourning that you have it wrong. If you are worshiping me as God, then it's worthy of grief because I am not God. There is only one true God and his son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Do not worship me. And so they begin to testify. They tell the crowds and they tell the community about, uh, about Jesus Christ, about his love, his grace, his life, his sacrifice, the resurrection we have in him, and the power that they exercised through the Holy Spirit to heal the man was not theirs, but was God's. 
So in the midst of this magnificent scene where many are acknowledging power through signs and wonders and misappropriating it as they're being corrected and invited into a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then we have a turn of events on the scene in Lystra. That's where we get to what we turn to in verse 19. Um, In verse 19, it says, Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. So they came from Antioch and Iconium. We already knew what happened in Iconium, right? In Iconium, uh, there was a plot from the Jews and the Gentiles that were poisoned uh, to mistreat and stone Paul and Barnabas. So we know what happened in Iconium. We do need to take a step back uh, in, the, in the missionary journey, what happened in Antioch, in verse 49 and 50 of chapter 13, it tells us what happened in Antioch. It says, in verse 49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. So the word of Jesus was spreading all throughout the region, but the Jewish leaders incited God-fearing women of high standing and leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecutions against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So what we have here in chapter 14, verse 19, in Lystra, we have people from Antioch who were stirring up persecutions against Paul and Barnabas, expelled them from their city. We have people from Iconium who wished to mistreat Paul and Barnabas, wished to stone them. And and now they arrive in Lystra. They follow Paul and Barnabas, and they're in Lystra, and they win the crowds over. So, here you are, Paul and Barnabas. You've been expelled from one city with a people, a crowd who want to persecute you. You've You've fled another city where they wanted to stone you and mistreat you. And now they show up where you are. What do you do? Maybe you run. You've run before. You've been expelled before and you've honored that expulsion and you left. You've done it twice before. What do you do now? The choice is yours. They don't flee. They don't leave. Instead, they stand firm and they continue testifying to Jesus. And do you know what it gets them? A stoning. It says that Paul is stoned for the gospel and they believe he is literally dead and so they drag him outside of the city and leave him for dead. I'll finish the story, but then we're going to step back into this contrast. So the completion of this story is magnificent and beautiful and absolutely crazy the disciples, those who, who believe in Jesus and are following Jesus, they come outside of the city, they surround Paul, and while he is there laying left for dead, he stands up, and what does he do? Does he run? Does he leave? Instead, he walks right back into the city where the people are that just stoned him. 
And he, he stays there for a night, and then he goes to the next town nearby, Derby, and he teaches and preaches the gospel there. And then what does he do? Does he go in the opposite direction? No. After Derby, he goes back to Lystra, where they stoned him to death. Then he goes back to Iconium, where they wanted to stone him and where there was poison against him. Then he goes back to Antioch, where they persecuted him. This is madness. And all of that is accomplishing the the multiplication of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the region, more and more coming to know of his grace and his love. You see, they had choices, critical choices, when people were working to persecute them and stone them, they chose to flee. And then in another situation, or even seemingly inconsequential, there are massive decisions that you have wrestled with and you might be wrestling with today. Where am I going to work? Where am I going to live? Who am I going to be in relationship with? How am I going to choose the appropriate and right behaviors through which I'll orient my life. We each make small decisions and huge decisions all the time. And what's so interesting is there are many decisions in which God has a very specific desire for you and for me. Uh, We know this from Romans chapter 12, verse 2. You and I uh, studied this just a couple of months ago. Uh, Romans chapter chapter 12, verse 2 says, uh, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the most often quoted portion. But then we talked about this together. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. God has a will. And so it's our desire that, that, that we each uh, uh, lean in working to discern what God's will is for our lives. That, that we seek God's faith, face in the small decisions and in the big decisions. That we work to align our will to God's will in every way possible. And yet there are also times in life where God's will is to be glorified in your will. Some of you were with me uh, nine years ago, eight years ago, uh, and there's a part of my life story that I didn't share with you that I was walking through at that time. Many of you know my my nine-year-old Sam, or at least you've seen him. Uh, He... uh, runs around this place like he owns it because he thinks he does. I think that's the plague of the pastor's child. Uh, and and uh, some of you remember whenever we brought him home, uh, he was three days old. We brought him home from the hospital, and he's been a part of our family and our family ever since. Uh, he was foster to adopt. We brought him into our family through the foster care system. But he's not the only child that we fostered. We fostered two others. We fostered Elijah and Daviana. Uh, Some of you might remember Elijah. Elijah came to our home whenever he was uh, just over three months old. And that was nine, that was uh, uh, 
there's a nine-month age difference between Sam and Elijah. So we had two little ones, and we would uh, haul them around not as expertly as some. And, uh, and Elijah was um, deeply wounded whenever he came into our home, physically and emotionally. He had uh, an extraordinary case of eczema that was untreated, and from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet, he had sores and boils from his eczema that made his skin so tender even to the touch. He also uh, had um, been conditioned to not cry. For the first month in our home, Elijah didn't cry. And it was because he had been taught that crying gets you nothing. And um, so Lauren and I welcomed him into our family, into our lives, and we nursed him to health and loved him to wholeness. And uh, I remember because he was bottle-fed, I would spend the nights with him multiple times a night, rocking in the rocking chair, uh, falling, falling asleep with him in my arms. Uh, and Elijah was such a deep part of my life and my heart. Elijah was never, we thought, available to become a part of our family, though, because he always had extended family members that were in the process to be a kinship adoption. He had grandmothers and aunts that were all working through the process. But after he had been in our home for 10 months, one opportunity after another, after another, family members were no longer available to welcome him into their home. And it finally came to the point where it was clear that Elijah was going to be adopted out of the foster care system outside of his family of origin. And then we had a decision to make, a critical decision, consequential indeed. Was Elijah to be my son or was he to be God's gift as a son to another family? I remember praying. It was about a month of prayer because Elijah was with us for 11 months, and we found that out at about the 10-month mark. And I prayed and asked God, God, do you want him to be my son, or do you want him to be another's? And God never answered me. I just wanted God to tell me what is right and what is wrong. And in the end, God told me that it's not about right or wrong, but it's about right or left. And his heart for me and my family and for Elijah was for him to be glorified no matter the decision. We face con consequential decisions all the time. Seek God in those decisions. Ask God, God, what is your will for me in this? 
but acknowledge that there are times in our lives, just like in Paul and Barnabas' life, when the answer doesn't come and God just says, you choose, I trust you. Just be sure to give me glory, honor, and praise. And I do. I praise God for Elijah's life. I praise God for his family, for the heirs who love him so well. And he's not my son, but he is my brother my brother in Christ, who God is glorified in to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for your presence with us in the midst of our discernment, our discernment about things little and small, our discernment about things grand and lofty. Lord, we ask that you would continue to move in our midst and be glorified in all that we do. Lord, we pray that uh, in this season, in this time uh, of our lives, that, that, that we would be able to offer our whole selves to you. And Lord, if we hear you say you choose, Lord, help us to not have pride or or, uh, or arrogance in that, but rather help us to humbly come before you and seek your glory in all things. Lord, we thank you for the witness of your servants who have gone before us, and we thank you for uh, all the ways in which you've blessed us and kept us over the course of, uh, of our lives. We pray that you would be glorified in this time of offering as we transition and worship and enter into a time of offering, we pray that you would use these gifts uh, to bring glory to your name, that you would uh, bless these givers, that all that is done in this space and this time would be honoring to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.